today's podcast, we have Tales from the Couch, NBA observations, including Harden and this new look Sixers, Bucks win over the Heat, some other stuff as well, G League nugget for you. Evan Drellick on MLB's stalled negotiations. He's been terrific on it. And also Jim Hecht, who is one of the lead writers, the new Lakers series, Winning Time on HBO and Life of Us. This episode is presented to you by Lululemon. The perfect pants do exist, and you can get them at Lululemon. The men's ABC pants are shockingly comfortable and breathable, and they come in tons of different styles and fabrics, all made to make you look and feel good. Whether you're in the office, at the gym, cheering in the stands, or just relaxing at home, these pants are in a league of their own. Buy a pair today at lululemon.com. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card, subject to credit approval, savings available to Apple Card owners, subject to eligibility, savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC, terms apply. I'm going to start today's show with a little... Tales from the couch and the NBA stuff that I was looking at. We'll sprinkle in a few nuggets as well. Uh, here's the deal. I was really excited about Milwaukee and Miami because I'm still, you know, kind of waiting for this last push from the Milwaukee Bucks where I feel like, all right, if everything's normal, am I going to end up picking them out of the East? And especially against a really good team in Miami that I have so much respect for because of how hard, how hard they compete, how good they are defensively. And I was watching the other night. They're just all like when you watch the middle of where they're at defensively and how the ball swings, they're actually paying attention to everything. It's it's a credit to Spolster. It's a credit to them. I'm not going to make a heat culture joke, but it's just it's really impressive to watch when you're kind of focusing on things that you don't normally focus on. You're not watching the ball swing, but you're watching how the players in the interior, how they you know have help lines they're paying attention to. It's just awesome, right? And it was really funny because I think the Miami game was the first game that I saw at the beginning of this week immediately after watching the Lakers lose the Pelicans. And I was just like going, all right, the last game I watched was, I don't know, uh, 16, 17 hours ago, and now I'm watching this game, and it looks like two completely different sports. So I bring all that up because into it, Milwaukee comes out in that first quarter. I'm thinking, all right, here we go. Here we go, Milwaukee Bucks. This is the team I'm looking for because – no, offensively, I'm not really worried about him, but defensively, a Bucks team with that much length, and I know that Lopez being out changes some things with specific matchups, um, but still, they're 16th defensively since January 1st, and I start to use that January 1st marker as we kind of clear out the rest of the season. But then Miami goes up 113-99 in the fourth quarter, so 7-12 left, and I'm thinking, all right, Milwaukee looks a little like they're, their energy is not matching Miami's energy. Miami was running some stuff with this kind of three-man game thing, which still they're running late, where it's Butler, Hero, and Bam, and they're looking at kind of getting Hero on Wes Matthews. And by the way, just to throw some Tyler Hero numbers at you, he's at 19 field goal attempts per 36, so he's not taking 19 shots per game. But when you watch him and how much freedom he has in this offense to not only create dribble probe, all that kind of stuff, um, he is not just some spot-up guy, which I think most of you already knew that. But this is somebody who is getting more shots up and has become a more efficient player. And if you look at the per 36 averages, at 19 per 36, he's clearly the number one option, even though it feels like it's Jimmy Butler. I mean, he's still like three-plus shots ahead of Butler on those per 36. There's stretches where Butler is not always 
you know, the guy, which is actually, you know what, the point. It's nice. They have multiple things that you have to defend. And this, again, is all without Kyle Lowry and also usually having one or two shooters that you have to respect enough to close out on. So it's a really nice group. They go up 14 points, and I'm thinking, God, like, what is up with Milwaukee? And then the Bucks come all the way back. Uh, that defense that has not been that great has been average, certainly by Bucks standards, below average, uh, held the Heat to six points over the last 7-12 of this game. Drew Holiday hits the game winner. Uh, he, I mentioned it last night, the collision with Gabe Vincent. Um, I, I think most of you got it, that that should never be a charge. It should never, ever, ever be a charge. Being in front of somebody and falling down is different than establishing position. This goes back to Van Gundy and I freaking out about charges a couple weeks ago. Um, and that shot by Drew, by the way, like this floater over Bam, who's coming over and is almost perfectly aligned to help on top of all of that. Giannis had a stretcher. I think he scored the only 10 points of the fourth quarter. They were all him. And even though it's not always the prettiest it's just so unstoppable once he gets any kind of momentum that everybody just kind of stops and deals with it so nice win for the bucks miami no lowry don't know that it changes all that much um as we're still trying to handicap what the rest of this east is going to look like speaking of the east james harden ever heard of him 26 9 and 9 last night for the sixers in a very convincing win against the knicks even though the knicks were up early felt like the knicks were still hanging around a little bit uh Harden looks totally different i don't want to hear about this hamstring ever again all right if you're a Nets fan watching what Harden is doing now in these three games and the passion and energy that he's playing with, it's a completely different guy. It just is. He's setting screens. They were running this action last night that J.J. Redick brought up, who, by the way, we're big J.J. Redick fans, but him, him saying how great Harden's defense is, especially in the post, was one of my favorite moments of last night because national television media rule when you're doing a Harden game, you have to say actually his defense isn't that bad and that he's actually terrific in the post because everybody runs post plays now in, an, in the NBA. Um, so Harden, 26-9-9, looks different, setting screens. Maxi now in the three games, who I was worried because, you know, Maxi's just not going to have the basketball enough. Off ball, and they're also, this is something Sixers fans probably appreciate, Doc isn't going full bench lineups. It's like, hey, let's throw in five guys that aren't starters for some of these stretches, uh, which, you know, I don't know, Doc likes doing sometimes, uh, but that's not what he's doing. He's splitting up Harden and Embiid and then finishing with them as well in the fourth quarter, something to pay attention to there. Maxi, how about these numbers in his three games? And I, look, I don't think this is going to hold up, um, but him off the ball, which is kind of the great thing about Maxi as a prospect is that he was comfortable with it, comfortable off of it. And now because he's not going to be initiating so much stuff and we'll see, you know, how, if Harden's still setting screens for guys and doing all these really energy-type things um, towards the end of the regular season because there's always a bit of a honeymoon period. But Maxie's 28, 21, and 25 in his last three games, 12 of 16, 8 of 14, 7 of 12, um, and he's making 65% of his threes. Embiid is taking less shots and taking more free throws. Um, they beat the, the Timberwolves, the Knicks, the Knicks. All right, fine. Best duo in the NBA. Feels a little quick for that. Uh, I don't want to sound like a hater, but before we start penciling in that this is clearly the best duo in the NBA, I want to see it a little bit longer. I want to see it against the better teams. And we're also talking about somebody hardened post-OKC getting out of the second round once and Embiid has never been past it. And aside for the Knicks, who are possibly easy to defend, by the way, they are 25th in offense since January 1st. The only teams that are worst offensively behind them are all teams that are tanking. I, I have now, this podcast, we have raised our target price for R.J. Barrett. I was kind of in and out right when I would start to love him. And I'm talking about like what he can be. He's good, right? But I'm talking about RJ as a star, like somebody, 
And I don't like to say one because none of these guys can do it by themselves. And so I'm not even saying that about R.J. Barrett. All I'm telling you is that watching him closer more and more this season, because I know I know he's had flashes, but then I always felt like, eh, and then that it's kind of not there. I think it's there. There's a freedom. And, and look, maybe it's the Miami game. You know, he had 46. They lost the game. But there's a swagger and confidence that he has that I'm noticing more now where it's changing the way I think about R.J. Barrett is, is all I'm saying. It's, it's not like, hey, specifically this part of his shot or this part of his offense. There's just an eye test thing with R.J. with the way he fits in now to games and how he sees himself that I think is really cool and is something that you can have some hope for as a Knicks fan, which we're realizing with the Knicks that they just were way over their skis last year. It wasn't a great basketball team. They won a bunch of games. They defended. They seemed more prepared. They had better depth, um, and Randall was just a better player last year, but Randall's just kind of easy to prepare for. He just is, and unless he's going to be making impossible shots, which it felt like he was making all the time last year, um, he can be somebody that kind of becomes, the offense becomes a little stagnant. Even if I'm telling you, like, I know it's been tough for Randall this year, but I'm not like somebody that like hates Julius Randall. Speaking of the tanking teams, by the way, Houston last night went to overtime with Utah. The amount of stuff they did wrong and still worked was phenomenal. When I watched Kevin Porter Jr., he had an ISO in Gobert, and there could have been 700 help defenders standing behind Gobert, and Porter Jr. was going to go one-on-one. Christian Wood hit a step-back three to tie the game and send it to overtime. And then Wood also gave the home crowd the shh celebration, which I never quite understood that. You're home, you hit a huge shot, the place is going crazy, and then you tell everybody to be quiet. I think that just means that we're used to guys seeing that. I did see an interesting celebration earlier this week, though. Jalen Suggs for the Magic, who hit a big three and did the Wes Matthews archer move into the Lance Stevenson air guitar. Not sure that I've seen the arrow slash guitar double celebration from somebody, but it was a big three for Suggs, so we'll, uh, we'll give it to him. So Houston did all of these things incredibly wrong, some of their drives. Jalen Green had a nice game last night. Um, Garrison Matthews did take a 30-footer with 10 seconds left on the shot clock. That was an air ball. So that wasn't their best play that they ran last night. But Houston showing a little bit of fight there. Okay, Oklahoma City, real quickly. It's a good thing Sam Presti is Sam Presti and not Sam Hinkie because he might lose his job for some of these lineups that are out there. And I'm kidding because everybody knows Presti's a really good GM, but he's also built up enough equity in the NBA circles because of all these teams that he's put together with the Thunder. Um, Henke had done none of those things, and that is the biggest difference. So anybody to say like, hey, what's up with the Thunder and their tanking roster? Yeah, okay, but like nobody could figure Henke out except for the writers that all defended him nonstop all the time. All right, so the Thunder played a guy last night named Lindy Waters the third out of Oklahoma State. He's played, I think, five games. This season, let me double check that. Um, seven. We also had uh, another dude out of Kentucky, Oliver Saar. He's played six games. And our last dude checking in is uh, a second rounder for the Wizards, Vit Krechi, who is now 10 games in. To his Oklahoma City. I'm just trying to help you in case you land on a Thunder game. That's all I'm doing there. All right, final point here. G League numbers. I've tried to help with this before. I'm going to keep trying. So Isaiah Thomas is back in the league, Charlotte. 
Got 10 points last night. Good for him. Never rooting against Isaiah Thomas. Just think people kind of overstate it a little bit with him in that Celtics year. It was a great year. It was fun for fans with all that stuff. They ran single high pick and roll every possession for the entire season. And he was awesome. And it worked because that team wasn't that great. And they made it to the Eastern Conference Finals. But whenever I see somebody promote G League numbers, and it'll kind of be like, you know, look at look at what this guy was doing. This is incredible. Have you paid attention to G League scoring numbers ever? Now, the answer is probably no. You just see a league pass broadcast, and they talk about their first-round pick, and that he had 86 the other day. And I know you're kidding. Nick Stauskas had 57 two nights ago. All right, I'm going to go through the top 10 scores in the G League so far this season. Saban Lee, 27 a game. Justin Anderson, 27 a game. Craig Randall II, 26 a game. Mason Jones, 26 a game. Carson Edwards, 26 a game. Stauskas, sixth in scoring. Quindry Weatherspoon. Santa Cruz Warriors, getting you 25 a game. Trevelyn Queen, 25 a game. Justin Tillman, 24 a game. And then Justin Jackson, who is a familiar name for the Texas Legends. He's 10th in scoring in the G League, 24 a game. The next time you're watching League Pass and they put up a graphic, of the first or second rounder and then what he's doing. And then they go back to the announcers and be like, man, this is, this is incredible. Gabe York had 40 last night. How come that guy's not in the league? I just told you why he's not. This episode is brought to you by Royal Caribbean. What are you going to do for your next vacation? Beach, island hopping, hiking, a little culture? Choose Royal Caribbean and you can go on all the vacations at once. That's the point. You want to go to Greece? How about they get you there? Everywhere else. I've looked at the Alaska packages. Alaska Inside Package, Alaska Experience Cruise, Vancouver Round Trip, One Way Out of Seattle. They have it all. They make it easier for you with adventure at every stop. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Visit royalcaribbean.com to learn more. Evan Drellick covers baseball for The Athletic. He has been one of the best resources for information on the collective bargaining negotiations. So let's kind of start with, you know, it feels like the three points. We don't need to get all the smaller stuff. Just kind of where we're at, why we got, how we got here, and then kind of your thoughts moving forward. Let's start with the competitive balance tax. It was rebranded as luxury tax uh, years ago, which is supposed to make everybody feel better about it. It isn't. Uh, there's a massive gap between the union and owners' uh, proposals on this one. And to fully understand this, kind of just take it wherever you want to go. Yeah, there are two elements of this on the CBT. The competitive balance tax, which is the luxury tax. One is the threshold, simply the amount of money a team can spend before it's penalized. And then there's a question of once it does get penalized, how badly are you getting taxed? How big is the hit to the owner's wallet? Um, one, of the big, one of the big con- points of contention early in this, well, really up until uh, our time in Florida, was that MLB was trying to increase the amount of money a team pays to go over it. So forget where it's set, but simply if you go over the thing, uh, they were trying to put in at one point a 50% first tax rate. It used to be 20%. And now MLB's come down on that and said, all right, we're, we're going to keep it at 20. And that was important to the players. And frankly, it was kind of always obvious that MLB was never going to get away with raising how harshly you're taxed uh, just by going over that first tier. So now the argument is about what what is that first tier? And subsequently, every other tier after, there are three tiers. And, and the, you know, if you hit the next tier, you get taxed more harshly. Um, 
MLB has gotten up to 220 on on that first tier. The previous one in, in the last CBA was 210. So they're up $10 million. Uh, the players in their most recent proposal have asked for $238 million. So, you know, almost a gap of $20 million, $18 million on that first tier. And it escalates over time, over the life of the deal. And that was the case in the past. But the players want this to go up because, as you pointed out, revenues have increased. And uh, if, if you look back, you know, there were teams spending around $200 million about 20 years ago, right? The Yankees were doing it back then. Uh, if you look at 2003 and, and that era, the, the, the great heyday of the Red Sox and the Yankees. So the, the argument for the players is uh, you're, you're making more money. You, you got to let your team spend it. But see, I guess the point that I, you know, I threw a stuff, ton of stuff at you and didn't really even ask a question. So great start out of me. But <laughs> when you look at the Dodgers, um, they were the, they got a tax bill of 32 million last year. I just think it's crazy that, wait, the league is basically saying, let's, let's kind of flatten what that tax threshold is on the first tier. Let's right. increase the penalties. And yet nobody's even passing it. So to me, this just feels like we're going to call it whatever we want to call it, but we're trying to get a salary cap out of this. Oh, yeah. Look, the, the owners for all of time and for all of time will want to have a salary cap in baseball. And it's kind of the irony of that 1994-1995 strike. The last time you had a work stoppage in baseball was 94-95. And the players really successfully fought off a, a formal salary cap. That was the big single issue in 94-95. But what was the thing that actually was introduced coming off of that? Uh, and that was the luxury tax. For the first time in the sport, you had this mechanism and, and it was advertised as being this thing that was going you know, to increase competitive balance and parity, stop the Yankees from outspending everybody. And maybe for a time it was actually functioning that way. But the, what's happened since is the owners have essentially weaponized it to serve their overall interests in suppressing player salary, right? It's all about cost control. That's what a salary cap does. You can talk about parity and all these other things, but at the end of the day, a salary cap is a good thing for management. There's a reason in hockey, you had a lockout for a year to get it. There's a reason uh, the owners and all the other sports have pushed for it and the baseball owners still want it. And so the owners in baseball know right now they're not getting a salary cap, but uh, that doesn't mean they don't want as many mechanisms as they can possibly find to act as close to one. And Max Scherzer said it the other day, the day that they canceled games, that uh, the CBT has acted like a de facto luxury cap and uh, a salary cap. And in, in some cases, he's right. Yeah, he's right. Because if you go through the history each year of how many teams actually go over even the first tier of it, it's not happening. So that's why I'm like, wait, you're still trying to hammer these penalties. And this is just playing it down the road for whatever the new TV agreement is or whatever the new regional stuff is, because despite what people would think of baseball nationally, the revenue, especially local and those regional sports networks, the RSNs and all that stuff, like people, I still don't think understand people say, Hey, baseball is a great topic on my national radio show. Okay, fine. Have you seen what the primetime numbers are for six months in more than half of these 30 baseball markets and how valuable this property still is? So then to implement all of these first, second, third tier tax penalties and basically try to keep that number where, again, the owners are proposing $214 million to $220 million over like a five-year stretch, that's it's, it's un because they're actually getting that now. All right, so when we look at caps in basketball, in hockey, and football, the reason we have them is because we'll say, oh, at least we have a minimum. I looked at the last couple, I went like, I don't know, over the last 10 years of the bottom 10 salaries, right? The average salary 
for the bottom 10 teams. So take the top 20. We're looking at the bottom 10. The average salary in 2015 for a bottom 10 team was $83.6 million. In 2021, it was $72 million. So it's actually gone down. And now you can make an argument, oh, with COVID and some of that stuff. And I know that's exactly what the owners would do. But that's insane. That's insane that the bottom 10 averages have actually gone down while they're trying. So this is where I know the players have said, and I was reading something from 2009. It's like, we want the goose, not the duck. Like we have the goose where we still philosophically do not have a hard cap on anything we're doing, but they're not getting the benefit now. And that's where I wonder where the union, if that'll ever pivot away and being like, okay, well, can we make it on the bottom here if we're still getting hammered at the top? Right. Basically, you're saying because in some cases, the CBT ends up acting like a cap. Should the players just say, screw it and and kind of go get the benefit of the cap? If they, if they have the negative right now without the benefit of it, uh, are they are they kind of shooting themselves in the foot? Um, you know, and this is something I, I've talked to people about a lot for, for a long time. There are some people who think that the players will never again be able to kind of claw back the, the share of the pie that they had before, that the owners have gotten too smart and it'll, it'll never happen and eventually they're going to be forced to it. That might be the case. Um, it is not the belief of the current leadership at the Players Association. And I think if, if we were to talk to third-party um, economists and, and people who understand the math behind all this, and probably if you talk to people at the other unions as well, they would say a cap is a bad idea. That you, would, you might gain a little bit in the short term, but you are cutting off the ability long term to uh, ever have an owner that wants to do some runaway spending. Steve Cohen, if, if he chooses to be the next George Steinbrenner, you know, LeBron James, if he played baseball, is making double what he's making uh, in the NBA. And uh, it, there is a reason that the owners have always wanted a salary cap. It is because it is fundamentally, by definition, something that benefits them. That doesn't mean that in a short-term setting, it couldn't benefit players. But what happens is, and you've seen this in the other leagues, in basketball, right? Over time, once you go into a cap system, let's say you start out at 57% of revenues going to players. What's the next negotiation going to be about? It's going to be about getting that percentage of revenue down. The, the owners are going to say, no, no, you're getting too much. You're getting too much. We got to knock this thing down to 50. And then down and down you go. And you will never, ever get out of that system if you're the players. And it really is this fundamental thing that they've stood on for years. So your, your point is taken, but I think the players look at it as the league would be bringing the water to the fire it started. You know, if, if all of a sudden now you go into a salary cap, well, that's what they want, right? They wanted to push you to make you think, if you're the players, that this is what you had to do. Right, and you made a terrific point too on just where the union says, no, we don't believe in that because philosophically they, they have to keep convincing themselves of that as well. And you're right, um, but... I think the harder part of it then is, because I'm not saying, hey, they should just accept a cap system so that they have, have a higher floor. I mean, the fact that any of the owners would want to be in business with guys owning a team at $50 million in total salary in, in the 2020s is, is absurd to begin with. But that's, that's another topic that we can maybe touch on here. But what do you believe about the lack of growth for MLB players' salaries? Because depending on what you want to read, and we know TV and how much it's tied to it, but the NBA, you could argue, is doubled. Um, the NFL growth slightly below that. Um, over that same time frame, I've seen numbers that say that MLB salaries have only grown by 
You could look at other charts that have said, you know, go back 20 years ago, baseball players are almost at 60% of revenue, then it's dipped down, and then some believe they're in the 40s now. What do you believe about an arrow that I think most of us think has always been pointing down? And there's a lot of information that would tell you that. And of course, the, the, the baseball side of it is going to... I remember one time I asked Manfred about it, and he brought up that minor league stuff was expensive. And I just was like, all right, whatever, man. I'm like, fine. And then he motherfucked me at some party later that night, and I'll never forget it because I because <laughs> I was right because I was fucking right when I asked him about it in San Diego at the All Star game, and then he looked at me like I was a dickhead, and then started talking shit about me to other people at ESPN, and I was like, well, obviously the point I made then is still the point today that it is going in the wrong direction for the players, and everybody knows it. It's just a matter of how much you think this is the, like to what degree. Yeah, like you're getting to the very core of the discussion here, which is that the players are betting that if you make enough changes to the restrictions on the marketplace, right? What is, the luxury tax is a restriction. That's all it is. It is a disincentive for teams to spend. So if you loosen that up, and if you do things that make losing less advantageous to teams, you know, why, why did the players want to change revenue sharing between owners? Because it was a feeling that teams didn't have to spend money to make money anymore. That they could take enough money from the central revenues of the sport, the national media deals, that go into the commissioner's office and then get dispersed to all 30 teams that, you know, it, 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 it was starting to make how well your team did not irrelevant, but less relevant than it should be that, that a team like say the pirates, it's an easy example, uh, could just consistently not spend, not perform well and still be you know, a viable, profitable team. And so the players are trying to, uh, change that. It doesn't look like they're going to get many changes in, in the revenue sharing program that, that they've significantly lowered their ask there. But the point is this, they think that if you if you loosen up the system, that it will create new money. That te- that teams will spend more if there aren't all these penalties attached to going over the CBT. Because it wasn't just that you get taxed on the dollar; it was that there was draft picks involved and other things uh, attached to it. They'd really kind of made it a complicated and b kind of onerous to go over uh, the CBT, and so. They, they think the, the ability for the revenues to go back up is there. But I, I do think, look, if, if, if they go through this deal, maybe another deal, and they're still not going up, you know, you're going to have to sit down and have a real conversation about, um, is this system something you can ever make work again in your favor? But uh, they believe they can. All right, let's talk about the arbitration stuff, because this is for the pre-arbitration eligible players. So, and clean up anything I don't have locked sure. in here, but it's kind of, we're talking about our super twos here, right? Um, it, yeah, it, it's, a, it's, it's guys, m- most guys in their first three years in the majors, a couple guys get to uh, arbitration eligibility in their, after their second year, right? Those are the super second. twos. So, but, but for most people, just think about guys in their zero to three, you're, you're in your first three, three okay. years in the big, in the big leagues. So that pool, and I, I know the numbers have changed on this recently, where I think the first things that are being reported is that, Baseball, the owners, they were offering a pool of $15 million to be increased to $20 million for the top 30 pre-arbitration eligible players um, based on war. And then the players came back and said, no, we need that pool to be wait. They want to completely overhaul it. They were saying $115 million pool for 150 players. It appears now that's closer. We're talking like maybe still $50 million off here. Um, it's not so much what the number is now because that, that's not important because we still don't know what it's going to land on. I think this is part of one of the fundamental things for the players. Like football used to have a disaster situation with not having slotting for draft picks. And you had Sam Bradford coming in, making more money than guys that have been playing forever. 
Um, before basketball came in with a slotted system, I remember being in college and Glenn Robinson out of Purdue asking for like more money than 75% of the league was even making. So both those leagues knew we, like, we have a problem. Baseball has suppressed this, and I understand draft bonuses. Maybe we'll get to that a little bit, but they've suppressed this where now you have a de facto fake cap that's called something else, but is a cap. And now we don't have really like slotting for some of the top players beyond the minimum salary unless you get a bonus in the draft. So the owners with this situation realizing they still are controlling these younger players at at really low numbers, then they can offer these team-friendly deals, which we also understand. Like you're, If you're somebody who's like, well, I already this is only what I'm going to make, so I might as well take this deal. And some of these players get crushed for taking these deals that take away free agency years. It feels like they have bottom-end control and top-end control here. And this is the part I think the players, it's the most important part for them to try to change this, to make that pool that much bigger. And that's why that number is so far apart because they ha- the players have to overhaul this for some way, for some benefit, which also would lead to players not wanting to take these team-friendly seven, eight-year deals that we've seen for some of the best players. Yeah, if you you know look back on the last decade, clearly we're seeing a lot more young players in the game. And there's there's a very direct reason for that. It is because they are cheaper. And and the other thing is this. Teams did figure out as analytics and Moneyball came into the game that younger guys actually can perform you know, pretty close to veterans. You know, if you look at wins above replacement and, and some of the new statistical things, I guess war is not new anymore. But, um, you know, they realized that, yeah, I don't need to pay this this veteran, you know, I don't know, the Miguel Cairo type uh, for a one-year deal. I, c- I can just um, bring up a kid from the minors and, and maybe he'll outperform, but, and he's going to do it cheaply. So in a way, this is kind of something that's been built in as a flaw in the system for a very long time, but nobody... Nobody on either side realized it for a long time, and the owners capitalized on it sooner. And it's a very hard thing to change uh, if you're the players. And so the players could have chosen to fight for something different here. They could have made their platform if they wanted to. We're going to expand arbitration eligibility. For, you know, forget this bonus pool. We're going to get more guys at a younger age sooner to arbitration. The thing about that fight is it would have... I mean, you might not have played baseball this year at all. We'll see what happens. Um, but that's the kind of issue that would, uh, create a very long work stoppage, I would expect. And so this is kind of, um, a happier medium where the owners are saying, okay, well, you need some more money. We'll give you some more money. Um, we're not going to let you expand arbitration because we don't like arbitration because it gives a way for salaries to grow over time. We don't like when salaries grow. Um, and you know, the players need to show some wins, right? And so, you know, money is still money at the end of the day. And uh, it 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 was actually kind of the first moment in this whole thing where you thought there was a little bit of progress is when they both agreed in concept on this pre-arbitration bonus pool. But yeah, there's a gap right now of uh, let's see, the league is up to thirty million, and the union last request proposal was eighty five million. So it's a gap of about fifty million dollars. Right, which is an improvement, I, I guess, from a hundred. Yeah, the league dollars, offers but... a million per team. Right? It's not that much money. You think about it. It's not a lot of money. <laughs> no, if you start averaging it out, being like, hey, increase the... I, here's what I guess. When, when you go through and look at everything, if, if I were to summarize it in a sentence, which I've not done well at all to this point, but the owners want the long-term protection that feels relatively flat yes. at the top without yes. improving the bottom while we all agree players' compensation seems to get worse every year based on total revenue brought in. 
Correct. The owners are <laughs> are doing what I think you would expect in this day and age uh, the billionaire class to do, which is try to uh, keep making as much money as they possibly can. And look, that is also what the players want to do, right? They want to make as much money as they possibly can. They didn't do a good job in the last two collective bargaining agreements. And so now they're up against it. All right. Well, at least there's a shift from when I grew up where, you know, guys just got pissed at the players all the time. And um, I know social media is not always the greatest indicator, but sure. it's it's always been impressive to me over the years to see how pro player. Everybody. All right. So now, look, you're on this beat. Where are we at now? What's going to happen? Um, we're going to we're having a meeting uh, today and they're going to discuss what the schedule, I think, is or just kind of a general outline of what happens from here. Uh, you know, I talking to people, they don't think it's people in the industry don't have a lot of optimism. This will go quickly. There, there's a sense that uh, the owners might be willing to wait about 20, 25 games, because if you wait 20, 25 games, you're not losing your TV money yet, your local TV money. But, you know, we, we don't know the individual contracts as the public and reporters at this point. But we know that generally, you know, an RSN pays a team, regional sports network pays a team for like 150. 40, 135 games, some, somewhere in there, 145 maybe. And so that means that probably the owners don't feel a lot of pain financially until you start to get to that point. So you can miss a couple of weeks in April, no, no big deal. And, you know, they're really dug in both sides. This is, this is years in the making and you've got hundreds of millions of dollars on the line. So to sit there and go, you know what, three games or, or six games or a week of games, that's going to be enough to change this. Doesn't doesn't make sense to me unless there's a real change of heart. I think this moves once both sides, one or both sides, have sufficiently felt pain, financial pain, and uh, you know, you that is your guess is as good as mine. Is what is that point? Is it May? Is it June? Uh, well, we're going to find out. Okay, last thought here. You know, I grew up with baseball. Uh, my first job was in baseball. I'm from New England. I love baseball. I don't talk about it a ton because I have, you know, I have a podcast and I, I know what works and I know what doesn't always work. <laughs> and I had a radio show for a long time and we could see to the segment, you know, and it sucked because I, I you know, I feel bad. Like guys like Buster Only, who are one of the first people I ever worked with, he used to come on my radio show in Boston. He came on for free every single week, you know, 2003. He came on and I was like, hey, can we do something? Send you some gift cards. And Buster's like, I don't care. I love talking baseball. He's like, I know you went to Vermont. I'm from Vermont, all that kind of stuff. And then, yeah. you know, later on with SVP and I, and, and even later on with Danny and stuff, it's like, hey, we're not going to have you on every week because we could see the meter. We could see what was happening with baseball. Um, I know this might be a weird pivot here, but we know Manfred's a terrible public speaker, but he's also just a meat shield for the owners. You know, mm -hmm. that's, that's mm -hmm. why he makes money to go out there and look bad and have everybody get pissed at him. But we had a work stoppage in the NBA not that long ago. We had a CBA in the NFL that was ratified by the players. And after they saw what happened, the 500 guys who didn't vote or some that did were like, oh, I don't even like this. But baseball, whether it was during COVID, which like every other sport, had their challenges and they found a way and they got it done to whatever degree they could. Is baseball treated unfairly in comparison to the other leagues that go through the same exact shit? Um, maybe. I, I think there is a perception. It is kind of funny when people say, well, they're, they're always fighting. Well, it, yeah, but this is actually the first stoppage you've had in, in a quarter century uh, in the sport. When people talk about how, how much animosity there's been. But they've been 
publicly going after each other, the, the players and the owners for, for a long time. I, I kind of look at it from a different perspective, which is that this is what this system, this, the this, this system of a union and a management group is designed to do. You are supposed to have points where basically you fight. It's not supposed to be perpetual harmony. I, I think most people look at it as like, well, what are you taught when you're a kid? Everybody should get along. It's great when people get along. But that's not how this business relationship works. It is not supposed to be that the players are sitting there going, let me do what's best for the owners. The owners are going to be going, you know, yeah, let me do what's best for the players. It's not how this works. And so you're going to have clashes. It's kind of remarkable and almost surprising. You didn't have a clash sooner in baseball than you did now. And I, I think if you're, if you're taking it from the fan perspective, what do you hope? You hope that you come out of this and they're in a better place. And they should be in a better place once this is all said and done. The question I asked Manfred at, at his uh, makeshift press conference at, at Roger Dean Stadium in Jupiter, Florida, was about the other entertainment options in the sport, in, 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 in the country, available to people generally. The fact that, you know, you, you go on your cell phone right now, you can watch whatever you want. You can turn away from baseball like that in an instant. Um, and he acknowledged kind of evasively that, yeah, it's a different landscape than it was in 94, 95. But I think that's a real problem, that if people were already not wanting to do a lot of baseball on their uh, highly listened to radio shows, you give people a few months away or a month away from the sport, it's not going to help you. And I think they know that. That was terrific, man. Uh, you can follow Evan at Evan Drellick and check out all of his work, senior writer, baseball, the athletic. Well, good luck, man. Enjoy it. I'm going to go stand on a street corner now. Thanks, Ryan. This episode is brought to you by Hulu Plus Live TV. Tired of paying for cable TV? Switch to Hulu Plus Live TV today to watch over 95 live channels for sports, news, shows, and more. Plus, get access to Hulu's entire streaming library with access to Disney Plus and ESPN Plus all in one plan. No long-term contract, no hidden fees, and no clunky cable box. Get Hulu Plus Live TV today. Live TV plan required. Restrictions apply. Access content from each service separately. Learn more at Hulu.com. Winning time. I've seen the pilot. It's out this weekend, HBO. And we're going to talk to one of the creators and the writer, Jim Heck, joins us now. All right. So how did this come together, Jim? I mean, I know the book. Yeah. Jeff Perlman, Showtime. You know, we, we were all been aware of it. You read a book, you come across a project. How did give us the the pre part of this to getting this together and actually realize you're going to be doing the show? Well, like all great things in my life, somehow it came out of one of the darkest periods. Like I was going through a horrible breakup. I was in the worst place I'd been professionally. And I just kind of got hit with this thought like, dude, you got to stop trying to make stuff that you think other people would want to see and make the show that you would want to see. And it was literally the next day I was listening to 710 out here, ESPN LA. And Max Kellerman was on and he was talking about Jeff Perlman's book was coming out. And I had grown up, you know, as a kid in Fountain Valley, Huntington Beach. Uh, I, 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 my dad took me to the Westminster Mall when I was six years old to stand online for two and a half hours to meet Magic Johnson. And that was huge when I was a kid. I, and, and I rose and died with that team. You know, I cried when they lost and I celebrated way too hard when they won. Um, and so I was at Book Soup 9 a.m. the next day when the doors opened, the book came out. I had read it by 11 and I called my agent and was like, I want to do like Friday Night Lights for the Lakers in the 80s. And he said, Jim, this is the thing that's going to be written on your door, on your gravestone. And so I flew out to New Rochelle 
Easter Sunday, 2014, I showed up on Jeff's doorstep with a a bottle of non-alcoholic wine, a hunk of chocolate and uh, a tomato and had dinner with him and his family. And Jeff's expectations were so low because he'd had a a few books option and nothing had ever happened with them. And he was willing to be like, yeah, dude, whatever you want to do, go try it. You know, and he said when I left him and his wife turned to each other and they're like, nothing's ever going to happen with that. And uh, I think that's pretty much how we felt probably right up until the cameras started rolling, maybe even till last night. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the part of it that people just don't really understand is that that's what almost eight years ago and yeah. you were you were that patch. And whenever you're going after a book to option it, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. yeah, just write us the check, man. Let us know. I mean, isn't that pretty much he didn't charge, how it worked? Jeff didn't even charge us. I got my richest friend to go in on me with, with me because I was like, oh, this is going to cost us a lot of money. And Jeff was just like, he's so nice. I don't know if you met Jeff Perlman, but yeah. probably the nicest human on the planet, like someone that makes me like like feel that I'm an okay person because he considers me his friend. And and he was just like, yeah, sure, go ahead. And for years, just was like, okay, cool. Whatever you want, go ahead, keep trying. And we got a ton of no's. We got no's all the time. Like it was years. And then, you know, nobody really thought that this was a great idea until Kevin Messick and Adam McKay thought this was a great idea. And then everybody thought it was a great idea. What a natural idea. How did nobody think of that before? It's, you know, that's how... That's how things go. You need a, you need one guy to say yes. All right. So take us to that part of it where, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's it's Max Bornstein, who, you, you know, you, you've written mm-hmm. the story together with. But yeah, uh-huh. I mean, it basically comes down to somebody like McKay going, OK, yeah, I actually want to do this. Right. I mean, this is how it works. Yeah. Well, and then the next step was Max because HBO introduced right. us. Actually, actually, a good mutual friend, Alex Litback, introduced us to Max Bornstein. And we were looking for showrunners because I my only track record was like in talking animal movies. Like I'd worked on Ice Age movies. So like I'd never even worked with human beings before. They wanted somebody who had worked in drama to 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 shepherd the project through. And I sat down with Max. Max grew up here in the valley and had the same sort of childhood love for the Lakers, that Lakers team in particular that I did. And and it was like in that conversation, I don't even know what he was saying. It was like my mind went, you know, the words were still coming out. And I thought, this is the guy. Like, this is it. And so we stopped our search with a, with a field of one. It was like, that's the dude. And, and Max is like, not only taking me to college as far as drama, drama writing, but also just, you know, is a, one of the, probably the most brilliant person I've ever met and just killed it on this project. And then he brought in his buddy, Rodney Barnes. And, uh, you know, the three of us, him and Rodney and, and, and me, and, and that's our writing room, two younger guys and, and, and and it's a small little crew and, and, and I work with the two most brilliant people I've ever met and I'm super lucky. You brought up the ice age stuff, which, you know, clearly I've, I've seen on the resume. Um, yeah. and the reason I was laughing about it as I was getting ready for the interview is I just finished the Mad Max Fury road book. It was the oral history of, of shooting that movie. Oh, wow. And it is as intense as the movie. It's probably more the book and everything that went on around that movie. But that people easily forget George Miller, who created Mad Max, such Australian guy. Mm-hmm. He was working on the Babe the Pig movies, and then he I, did wow. he, he did Happy Feet too while he was prepping the Fury Road shoot. Oh yeah! So this is somebody that that's created some of the most violent, like in an, it's not just blood and guts; it's this intensity of of story and character. And then it's like, oh, by the way, I'm going to finish this animated penguin deal right and i when i was reading about your thing i was like 
you know, Hollywood can be really tough. And that is like, well, wait a minute. The the Ice Age guy is going to do a drama for HBO. <laughs> and it's always kind of bullshit. I mean, because people don't want right. to take the chance on somebody until they they've already proven it or like, oh, stay in your lane. But mm-hmm. I mean, is it really that different? I mean, you're still just doing a story, right? So how do you apply some of the stuff that you've done there as you're trying to figure out something that you're this passionate about that's different? You know, yes and no, because I think on some level, like I thought because it had some success, particularly young, that like I knew it, you know, like I knew how to do it and it wouldn't be that difficult of a of a transition. Um, Hollywood as an industry or town seemed to see it differently. And they were like, you know, just stick to the talking animals, kid. That's what we want from you. And that was easy for me. That's that's why I got to a dark period of my career, because I was wanting to take that and whoever would pay the most and whatever the highest profile project was, I would take. But you can't make a career that way. Like you can't get by just doing stuff that you like. It has to be stuff that you love. That's the only thing that's going to get you through really to make something good. It's really, Rodney likes to say all the time, it's really hard to make anything that's good. Now, the other flip side of that coin is like, I didn't know what I didn't know. And drama is a completely different, you know, ball of wax from, from, from Ice Age. Like I love, don't get me wrong. I love, love, love Ice Age working on those movies with those people but this is like going from being a sprinter to a power lifter or vice versa and and there was just it was a huge learning curve you know and how that stuff is written and i emerged from that you know we've been in the writer's room now for three years pretty much every day and uh and and i'm a different writer you know it's it's i i'm not the same person that went into it and that's because rodney and max were super hard on me and they broke me down and remade me into something different. And I love those guys for that. It was not comfortable as learning and growing rarely is, especially as we get older. But I'm so grateful for those guys. Those guys are my brothers. You know, they, 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 I, I, I can't say enough. Let's talk about the pilot. Um, I, I got to watch sure. it last night. Quincy Isaiah, actor, plays Magic Johnson. Um, he's 6'3", and he played football in college. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. What did you think, by the way? Did, did, did he, does he pull it off? I thought he was awesome because when I re- I actually read your pilot two years ago, and I think it's different from the one I read. I, I came across it and I got done. I go, I feel so bad for these guys having to figure out how to cast Magic Johnson. I was just like, well, whatever. That was a lot of the nose. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot of people didn't. That, that was the nose that we got before McKay. People were like, you're never going to be able to cast Magic Johnson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Where are you going to find two guys that are that tall, that can play basketball, that can also act on a level of like an HBO drama? And Francine Mazur, our casting director, did it. And the magic one came pretty quick. And she did an open call. Quincy, I remember going to his IMDb page when I saw his tape. because like, you know, you never seen that guy. But it's like, wait a minute. This guy has it. And then when he smiled, and Adam said the same thing. It was like, when he smiled, like, it's Magic Johnson. And, and I told Adam, I was like, the thing that's going to be written on your gravestone after all this stuff, the Oscars is going to be, I discovered Quincy Isaiah. Um, and so I went to his IMDb page. It was blank. <laughs> he had nothing on it. I went to his Instagram and had 264 followers. And then I Googled him. And what comes up is his Kalamazoo College, you know, highlight reel, which is 30 minutes of him making pancake blocks because he was a center. He played center on the college, you know, on the Kalamazoo College football team. He was over 300 pounds. And so he discovered acting, you know, late in college and was like, I'm going to Hollywood. Don't do this at home. If you're thinking about it, it never happens. And Quincy took up the one that's going to happen for the next 10 years. Like nobody comes here and makes it like that. But watching him is like, it's like watching a DiCaprio or an Amadeus or something like that. He's just a natural genius. 
You know what I mean? It's a level of artistry I don't have. For me, I had to work at getting where I'm at. Like Quincy just has it and 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 is like a you know a Michael Jordan talented guy level of talent as an actor. And and you can't help also can't help but love him. The best kid on the world in the planet. Him and Solomon are such great people. I spent a lot of time talking to Quincy's mom last night because whatever she did, man, she she did it right because he's just such a good person. And then Solomon too, like where Solomon is another level of complication for Kareem because Kareem is 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 brilliant. You know, he's a television writer, he's a novelist, he's a a public speaker, he's an advocate, an activist. He speaks at the Democratic National Convention, so you can't like half-ass it with that guy. And he's seven foot tall. Right. And so what did we find? Francine went out and found a guy who hadn't acted, but played basketball at Cal and had a PhD and whose dad had a PhD and, and, and is a brilliant guy. And so when you see Solomon on screen, he embodies that internal process that you see with Kareem. He's always thinking it's deep. You know what I mean? And that's the kind of guy that's, that, that, that Solomon is, but you know, Solomon is, is probably a lot easier to talk to and get to know he's an open book as a person. And uh, very warm. And, and again, those two guys, like I could not be happier for them as people because they're just the best people. I, I can't believe it. And then, you know, just seeing magic and some of the basketball scenes close. I don't want to give away too much of the end. You're like, oh, OK, this guy played. He played. And that's why I think so many sports movies completely fall apart. It's like you want me to buy in. You want me to believe this. And then the second the guy touches a ball, you're just like, all right, this is it's, it's hard. It's a hard thing, especially when we're talking about guys that are this good. I want to pivot then. To John C. Sure. Riley, who I think is probably mm-hmm. one of the most underrated actors of his generation. He can do comedy without being funny. He can do drama. And mm-hmm. he kind of drives, he really does drive your story. I mean, it's it's focused around him as it is as much magic. What was it like? Were, you know, that's a basic question. Let me think. How do you write mm-hmm. to John C. Riley once you know you have him? Well, you don't, because I mean, that's why John's a better actor than than you know, 99 or maybe even hundred percent of everybody that's out there. Like he has an uncanny ability to do what the great ones do what the Daniel day Lewis's do, which is like, you know, you see a lot of movie stars and they play themselves every role. So you have to write for that. I've done it before in a lot of movies, like you write for their voice. You know, I'm not saying Romano is not a good actor, but like when I was working on ice age, I watched everybody love Raven constantly on a loop to get that voice in my head. And, and, and with John, it's different because we're not writing for John. We're writing for Dr. Buss because I honestly, I didn't see it at first. Like when I heard John C. Riley, I, I thought stepbrothers, you know, I'd forgotten about the John C. Riley of Magnolia and, and Boogie Nights and stuff like that. Gangs of New York. And yeah. I mean, you're talking about somebody with serious, serious acting chops, you know, uh, uh that, who came up with like Paul Thomas Anderson. And so I didn't, wasn't recalling that. And then when he showed up, he doesn't, when you look at John C. Riley, you don't see Dr. Butts, right? I mean, that's just not what he looks like. The first time when he showed up and then went in hair and makeup and came out with the mustache and the, the chest hair and the shirt open, it was like, oh my God, it's him. It's like really him. Like he walks out and he just embodies that to where to me anymore, I don't see, you know, Dr. Buss. I see John or vice versa. It's just indistinguishable for me. So it's a unique experience in that way because because John has that uncanny ability to actually go become another person like that is an extra layer of, of acting that most movie stars don't have. How's the bus family feel about the project? I don't really know. I hope that she gets it. You know what I mean? Like uh, Jeannie bus, you're talking about someone who was a hero to me who I'd never met, but feel incredibly close to. I mean, funny story when Rick Fox was a friend of mine from the nineties. So Rick threw me in his 
school after they beat Indiana for the first championship. So I've been like, you're going to do this thing. You're going to do this thing. He never believed me. When it finally came about, I, I introduced, because Rick's a consultant on the show. So I introduced Rick and Max. We go to a restaurant in Brentwood. And the very next table over is Jeannie Buss and Linda Rambis. And it was the day that they got rid of Jim Buss. So they had a lot on their minds, uh, but did come over and say hi. And I don't know. I hope that, I think Jeannie's incredibly savvy. I mean, you saw that with the kids. She's the one that gets it the way that her dad got it. You know, what the brand means and what the future means and what's cool and what's not. And I think knowing that about her, I think she's going to love it. Ultimately, if she gives it a chance, she's going to see how good it is for her brand and how good it is for her. And, and I think she's going to, my hope is she's going to dig it because we love her. And, and, and I hope at some point that, 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 that she says that, <laughs> um, but I can't control it really. I just got to tell the truth with the story. I can't, you know, we can't make it to try to make Jeannie happy. I don't know that Jerry West is going to love the way he's portrayed. Uh, would he love any portrayal of him though? He's like <laughs> such a tortured soul like that. I don't want to say that I play favorite with my characters, but that's the one I identify with the most having had my own struggles with depression and addiction and stuff like that. It, and it's crazy. It's crazy to think when I read his book, for example, you hear him talk on interviews and it's like the icon of the NBA, literally the logo of the league, you know, a legend beyond almost any legend. And on the inside, after all that street stand after him, statues, awards, whatever, he feels just like me inside in my worst moments. Like, and, and it's impossible not to relate to that and love that. I'm sure when he, if he watch, I picture him that he's going to have to watch every minute hate everything but he's gonna have to watch it because he's gonna torture himself you know and and uh and and i hope that he knows that we love him and and i think that people are gonna watch it and love jerry west even more than they already love and revere jerry west because he's so complicated and tortured and eccentric and and crazy genius talented and and all the things that come with him jason clark you saw the pilot like jason clark amazing like oh yeah i mean i've loved that guy since brotherhood brotherhood is one of my favorite like a show nobody gave any attention to no one loved and i loved yeah. it took place in providence and everything and so uh yeah yeah no big fan jason clark should win an oscar for a tv show in this he's that good i'm not just bragging because it's my show but he blew, blew us away he's he's incredible you know what i loved about the jerry west part of it though and this is you know there's a couple things here that I want to get to, but all right, it's a TV show. So we get, we got to have fun. We got to, you know, for the creative process, I don't want to have to feel like, you know, if you're, if you're you going like, I know who Jerry West is, everybody should know who Jerry West is. And I'm going to have him be this cantankerous guy. Who's not exactly on board with drafting magic Johnson and all the history that goes back to that pick 40 years ago. But then you give us that snippet of why he's this tortured soul. So like for right. me, I already knew and I'd read about him. I've interviewed him, you know, like he's pretty open as he's gotten older, just being like I was the most miserable human being in the world because of losing all those finals. But I thought yeah. you you set him up and then introduced him late to confirm like this is why this guy is this way. So even if there wasn't sympathy, there was there was reasoning behind it, which I thought was done really well for an audience that maybe is learning all about this for the first time. And then somebody like me that already knew this stuff. And I thought that was handled in a really cool way. And then obviously he delivers on the performance. Thanks, man. It was, and it, you know, we go into it more uh, in upcoming episodes because Jerry is not just tortured by the Boston finals. Like it goes back to being a kid in West, in West Virginia and having a really, really difficult childhood with a father that was 
kind of monstrous to him and uh and 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 having his brother who was maybe the favorite child or at least as he saw it the golden boy killed in korea and i think that when you know his brother goes over his brother was supposed to play at west virginia and he went overseas out of you know jerry's sight and control and came home in a coffin and i think when something like that happens as a kid you're like i need control over everything because if i let go of something for five minutes it could be lost and that transfer that's why he has to have the ball at the end of every game you know he needs that control that's why he 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 wasn't a great coach because he couldn't make players play the way that he is but he's a great gm because he can make it into a puzzle and put all the pieces together and control exactly what's there that's also why he can't watch the games because he can't control what goes on on the floor you know he does like billy bean he drives around the parking lot or you know drives up the 405 and, and can't look when you're trying to figure out kind of like the all right what's the pilot, like the pilot's written differently than now, now that you're in it, your episodes, here's the buy-in mm -hmm. and everything. When you're yeah. trying to figure out that through line, um, and it's something that a lot of people do already know, how do you balance like, hey, this is something I care this much about. I want to be technically as accurate as I can be, but I also am writing television here. I'm writing an hour long drama. So I need to, to tweak some things. How do you deal with the balancing act of that? Yeah, I mean, you kind of got to do it by sight or, you know, you know it when you see it. But like we try to be true to the characters, to the people, the individuals as we know them and try to be true to the story. So like I can't know necessarily what happened in the conversation in 1979 between Magic and Kareem, but we can, you know, fill in the blanks as we know those two characters to to get into their heads and stuff like that. So, you know, we try not to craft things that are purely fiction and that they don't fit the people or the general arc of, of what happened in, in the story. But at the same time, like, yeah, you're trying to dramatize stuff and, and, and give your perspective, you know, you try to be objective, but at the same time, we're telling a story and, and, and things fit if they fit that story and they don't fit if they don't fit that story or those characters. And so, you know, you just got to try to be cognizant and, 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 and as we went into it more and more, you get deeper in the characters, you start to get a better feeling for what fits and what doesn't. We were fortunate in a way that we had, you know, we we're supposed to shoot a year earlier. The pilot was shot in 2019 and then the pandemic hit. And so we were forced slash given an extra year of writing where we went back and tore up everything we had done in the first year or a year and a half or two years and kind of started over. And we, you know, we, 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 we sat out and did a shorter period of time because the more you get into it, you want to spend more time with these characters. So we were blessed by HBO and blessed by the universe for giving us, you know, a long time to try to, to figure out season one. And now I think we have a better idea going forward. Premiere was last night um, for you. And uh -huh. obviously this is coming out this Sunday on HBO, 9 Eastern. Um, what was I didn't it like know. For you? Thank you for telling me, by the way. I didn't know. My wife just asked me what time it was and I didn't know. Well, I'm glad because usually people get really pissed when we haven't mentioned it three times already. Uh, oh, thank you. What was that moment like for you? Last to see, night? To see the art, to see to see the whole thing go, holy shit, we actually did something. And knowing everything you've told us that you've gone through, what was that moment like for you? It's surreal. I mean, there's been a lot of moments like that. Like when Jeff came to visit the set for the first time, I hadn't really been out on the forum set yet. And walking out onto the forum floor, my dad was the guy who would buy us the seats, like a row from the ceiling, like you could touch the ceiling. So to be able to like walk out on the forum floor and see the Laker girls and see Magic and Kareem and Dr. Buss, it was like, 
not only am I stepping into my childhood, but my greatest childhood fantasy to be able to do that with Jeff, who's been with me and trusted me from day one was amazing. I think the bookend of that is last night, I'm sitting next to Jeff at the premiere. There's hundreds of people there. It's a big theater. It's, I don't know, 500,000 people. And Adam McKay is introducing the movie. And he says, he points out Jeff, makes Jeff stand up. And then when Jeff wanted to sit down, kept saying, no, 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 no. I want you to stand up until you're super uncomfortable. Uh, if you know Jeff, he was super uncomfortable the, the second that McKay said his name. And so that I think it was like the best moment. Honestly, I think that was the best moment for me was sitting there with Jeff and his kids who were like 10 when I met him and now are in college and getting to see him get that from his kids and give that back and get the recognition that he deserves like i couldn't it's one of those things i couldn't have scripted that that felt better than i could have possibly imagined well congrats man i'm happy for you and uh as somebody who that thank you, you no know, whenever the sports show comes out you're kind of like how are they going to do this yeah and well you talked about the basketball thing and that was super important to me because nobody gets it right nobody gets it right and so we really sat out and tried to make it right you did. You did. Because as soon as I saw him handling and just driving down the court towards the end of the pilot, I was like, oh, my God. I'm like, this guy's and again, you shoot him, too, where he feels like he's six, nine the entire show. Um, you can just kind of tell, which, you know, it's is it's like that's the whole point. Um, but I was I was really impressed by by Quincy. I was actually pretty shocked because I didn't think you'd be able to pull off the Magic Johnson part of it. I was like, how are you going to find Magic Johnson? And you did. The last thing we did with the audition, because we were like, we got to see if he can play basketball, is we took him out with Rick Fox. And Rick was like, my goal is to make the kid throw up. And he did not throw up. But it was brutal. It was like, run 50 suicides, then shoot free throws on one foot with your left hand. It was just crazy. And Quincy just kept coming and just kept coming and like that football attitude and he, he could do it. That also sounds like a stupid workout for a guy trying to learn how to play basketball by the way <laughs> we just had to see if he you know could fit. no we didn't honestly we didn't need to see if he had that kind of endurance but we did need to see if he you know could play like it like look like maddie johnson and he i have the film i watched it a few times over again and it's it's great it's just a great moment well congrats and thanks for the time today jim thanks ryan i appreciate you having me This episode is brought to you by Crown Royal. This NBA season, Crown Royal is celebrating the loyal fans that show up for every tip-off. I love every tip-off. I love every one of them. And people ask me, hey, are you tipping off tonight? Because they know that's code for, are the games on? And I'll say, yeah, come on over. Bring your kids. I don't care about the audio feed. You can walk in front of the television. Because this time of year, the second half of the NBA, it's about family. And that's one of my favorite things about my life. Crown Royal believes if you live generously, life will treat you royally. Visit crownroyal.com to get ready for tip-off. Please drink responsibly. This episode is brought to you by Cintas. In sports, you're always thinking of that next play. It's the same with business. Cintas has the products, people, and solutions that help keep you a step ahead. And your Cintas MVPs are the dedicated service reps who help make sure your team has what you need when you need it. They really got you covered. Cintas has workwear and apparel for almost any job imaginable. They have styles that are durable, comfortable, and great looking, and they'll deliver fresh uniforms back to your business every week. They'll deliver floor mats and restroom products and stock your essential cleaning supplies. They provide first aid supplies, safety training, and life-saving AED defibrillators. And then they'll even test and inspect your fire extinguishers, fire protection systems, and emergency exit lights. Visit Cintas.com and get ready for the workday. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari, 355 Cabriolet. 
What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. Before we take off with life advice here, I, I just want to share something with you guys that doesn't happen really ever uh, in this business. But we taped with Dirk. And despite a healthy ego, I also don't expect that Dirk is going to remember me from a phoner twice, like 10 years ago and maybe 88 years ago. I kind of go in with that being like, maybe he'll remember me. He loves Van Pelt. Okay. He loves Van Pelt. Van Pelt fucking loves him. I, I don't even know if they've ever hung out. Maybe they did some shoot or something like that. There was always this rumor about potentially doing a sports center ad. And then I, as a young brash person, I remember it was kind of like, but Mark Stein was going to work his way into the This is Sports Center ad. And I was like, how's Mark Stein going to be in a This is Sports Center ad? Like, I think Stein was offering up Dirk, but with the condition that Stein would also be in the This is Sports Center ad. And like the This is Sports Center ads, you don't get to just be in those. Like that was a big deal, especially when they were still really good. And uh, anyway, anyway, the point is, is that after we got done with Dirk, he stayed on for another eight minutes with us. And he was also doing multiple interviews that day. Guys don't do that. And he was talking about Van Pelt. He started talking about some other things. And I thought the interview was good, but boy, I would have loved to get in that version of, of Dirk. Uh, for the full 30, 40 minutes of the interview. I just wanted to share that with people to understand that um, it's not me being like, look how cool I am. I He stuck around for eight more minutes. It's that he's that cool. Guys like him don't ever do stuff like that. And that was kind of, I was pretty blown away that he hung out. And, but we were kind of like, all right, dude, we know you got to go. And he's like, oh yeah, okay, later. So I don't know. I don't know how you felt about that, Saruti or Kyle, but it's just, that doesn't happen. We both know we've been doing this a very long time. And I was, I was like, that's pretty cool. My only interactions with Dirk have ever been obviously through, you know, interviews and setting things up like that. But if you ask anybody like around the business or whatever, like who are like the top, I whatever list you want to make of athletes that are just good dudes that everybody seems to just like, he's, he's at the top of that list. And I think, yes, I think that that interview sort of showcased why. And you're right after the, after he was kind of just shooting the shit about Steve Nash and different stuff and was really cool. And I think everybody got a kick out of him looking like a telemarker because he was wearing like the headset thing behind a blank wall, um, <laughs> which even made it, which made it even visually more funny. But, uh, that's just the, I don't know, everybody who's been across him or worked with him or probably played with him seems to just love that guy. And it's easy to see why. You know, it's funny because Steve Nash is actually sort of the same way. I've, I've, I haven't really been in a room with Dirk, but I've been in a room with Steve Nash with Bill and he's like kind of the same way. So it makes sense that they're great friends. And it was also one of those things you almost wish you did it earlier, but when you run, like if you, you almost wish you before the interview, you got that, you know, that uh sort of back and forth but then you run the risk of losing eight minutes and the and his like you know pr guy be like all right sorry we gotta go but yeah definitely would have uh probably even loosened the interview up even more which i already thought he was like you know super comfortable but uh, you know you almost wonder what that that 28 minutes would have been like uh if we had opened with that before we pushed record yeah all right so look we shared it and um let's get on to life advice life advice rr at gmail.com um like anything now, this is sort of pivoting into a lot of follow-ups. So I'm not saying don't send them in. I just don't know how much. It's almost like becoming a little Listen, community here. Yeah, We live in a sequel culture, Ryan. Like we, That's what people want now. Well, every, every movie that made is a sequel. We're bringing stuff. There's like nine new Ghostbusters movies every other couple of years. So sequels are in. It's hot. So the kid who screwed up his baseball interview for the student newspaper, he followed up in and said, hey, the whole reason I didn't have my questions prepared is I was actually prepared for the other piece because I was assigned two different pieces. 
He's like, so then the PR person that put me in touch with the team fired up the other thing that I didn't think had been assigned yet. And he's like, so there were some signals crossed on top of it. He goes, but at that point, oh. I had already missed the interview. So I couldn't then be like, so the way his follow-up, I got a lot more faith in that kid. His follow-up was like all over it. So I don't think he's a disaster. Um, so there you go, bud. And it led to the Dirk Bentley question. Oh, no, no. Did it? Same I day. Know. I don't know if it was the same, same time. Definitely the same day. Same. No, because that was the guy that was asking about uh, being a stand-up right. comic, right? Stand-up yeah. comedy. Right. Thank you, Saruti. Helping out those rocking chair moments here. Um, <laughs> because I have a comedian follow-up, uh, a comedian who checked in, who I thought, no doubt, all the comedians that we've had follow-up, I knew what would happen is they'd be like, hey, I want to come on the podcast. And it's like, <laughs> why? <laughs> okay. This guy did not ask to come on the podcast, and I thought his email was funny, and so we're going to read it. What's up, squad? 27-61-202 at my peak. Does he mean height or weight? I don't... Probably weight. That'd be great if guys started... That's what I'm going to start doing. It. My height peak was this prior to... All right. <laughs> so, yeah. Because <laughs> I've written it a couple times and actually have some perhaps unique input this time. I know you can't tell by my name or picture... Uh, I know you can't tell by my name or pictureless email, but I'm black. So if you don't read my email, it's pretty racist. And Black History Month just ended, and that's <laughs> fucked up. Uh, anyway, see, so you started with a joke. I hope. I don't know. I, you never know. I don't want to get in trouble. I don't think I can for that. It's his email, right? Anyway, uh, I used to run a stand-up open mic in L.A. for a couple of years. I've seen everyone from people who need their own Netflix special to people who should never do stand-up again. I'm fascinated. I want to do a Netflix special on people that should never do stand-up again. That's what I think would be a good Netflix special. Uh, if my guy is serious about comedy, here's what you should expect. You're going to bomb. Everybody does. Look at Kyle. Kyle knows this. Kyle, have you ever thought about doing stand-up? Uh, yeah, I do. Like some people sing in the shower. I kind of work stuff out and it's like, hey, I can never do this. But I, it'll never stop me from trying. <laughs> Just observational stuff. <laughs> Wait, time out, time out, time out. Sorry to our comedian email. What kind of stuff are you working out in the shower? Ah, see, that's like that stuff I can't even tell you, but it's it's definitely observational stuff. I try to think about some situations I've been in. You know, I'm in the armpit of Hollywood. I see stuff. I wonder if it's too if it's too edgy to joke about. But I mean, it'll never happen. Is it stuff that you use? Like, is it stuff you use at Frolic Room, or is it just uh, all? It could in your be head, Frolic like Room. Could be stuff on the way to Frolic Room. Could be stuff from just stories. I bet it, I've got stories. You know, I haven't been tapped out of all my stories. So you know, I think about like you know, I think the story joke is probably a little harder to nail than the. Uh, than the observational humor joke, but I don't know. Uh, but the one thing that I would say is I think I got started thinking about it because two years ago, uh, the loser bottom bottom tier team of our fantasy football team had to do like five minutes uh, of a tight five somewhere in, in New York City. Um, that was like the, that was the Are punishment you, for the loser. The loser had to do five minutes of stand-up and open mic? Yeah. How bad was it? I mean, I didn't fly back for that. I should have, but uh, that was like two years ago. Yeah, flying back for that. I think idea. it was. I think it was actually a guy who probably would have been the best one to do it, just because he didn't care. Like well, most of us would be too in our heads, but you know. Okay, can you give us any hint of of like a joke that you've tried to work on? <laughs> hmm. No, okay. <laughs> I, I really put okay. you on the spot, and I don't want you to feel bad about it. So it's fine. I will, I'll never feel bad. no. Okay. I think like a Kyle memoir, though, like would work. You know, if Kyle was just wrote down his stories and work with you, working with Bill, living in L.A., Frolic Room, like there's something there that's marketable that he could sell to a book company for sure. Yeah. 
No, no, no. Maybe like a fifty pager. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Like, like a pamphlet. something quick. Yeah. It has this has blog written all over it. I don't know that it's two hundred and fifty pages yet. <laughs> no. You would need no. to be more fucked up, but I don't think you are. No. You know? <laughs> if you're gonna be in your twenties writing memoirs, you gotta be doing some weird shit. Yeah, you've got to at least done right. some time or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. All right. Okay. Moving on. Um, if my guy's serious about comedy, you're gonna bomb. All right. Whatever. Uh, there we go. All right. Sometimes you're going to perform in front of no one. Everyone starts somewhere. My best friend, uh, my best friend and I ran the mic together on the first night we opened. I did 15 minutes in front of him and the bartender. Then he did 15 minutes in front of me and the bartender, <laughs> a security guard that patrolled the parking lot, walked in for four minutes, decided we weren't worth his time and went back outside of the empty parking lot. I think he just wanted to sit down. <laughs> Most open mics are going to be comedians that don't give a shit about your set and aren't going to be paying attention. They're just waiting for their turn to go up there and bomb after you. If you can make a room full of impatient comedians laugh, you're onto some golden material. Network, 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 show up early, stay late. This is where you can meet people and find out about shows and connect with people who've been doing it longer than you. Greet the host and say goodbye. They will remember. A little politeness always went a long way. You don't have to treat me like Tony Soprano, but come on. It's all going to be so fun. How about that? Positive, a nice positive, positive spin at the end. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Here's um. Here's a good life advice. We'll do two quicker ones. Five nine one seventy five. We work at a small private K through eight school in the Midwest. Maybe once every other week, people will bring treats to the school, and they will be in the teachers' lounge. It could be a parent saying thank you. Or the case today, one of the staff members is expecting the baby, so they bring in treats to announce the upcoming birth with the email saying, we're expecting treats are in the lounge to celebrate. Sounds like the old freeze pops deal here. Uh, This dilemma is specific to donuts. There's a culture of my school of taking out a plastic knife and cutting the donuts in half. However, I'm not really interested in this. For me, a donut is an entity in itself. Big time. I don't really want half a donut. I'm not sure if people are cutting the donuts because they don't want the whole one or if it's common to only take half so everyone will get one. I have assumed the former to make me feel better about taking a whole donut, but now I'm getting self-conscious about people seeing me eat a whole donut, uh, uh, the whole cream-filled long john in the teacher's lounge. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what they're called or is this guy's, is that his preferred nomenclature? Oh, so you like the joke. I thought you had, you were like, man, those are good. I didn't know why you were laughing no, so hard. Uh, no, but I don't I've know. I've got something I... to add at the end of this, but um, no. Is that what they're called? Have you ever called them that? Or is that just this guy being hilarious? I, I just looked it up. I guess it is. Yeah. Long John uh, Donut, uh, bar-shaped. Sorry. Sure. Didn't, didn't want to give him too much credit there. Sorry. Yeah. There's a recipe right here for cream-filled Long Johns. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm going to mute. <laughs> <laughs> What did you, th- you think? Be honest. Did you think it was a dick joke? And I was <laughs> totally, reading the Daniel. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> totally. Or the guy was just funny. I mean, it might be. We don't even know. It could be. There's a brand of dick joke that's funny, and there's ones that are just stupid. I think that's like, you know, in the middle so of you, both. So you were laughing that hard thinking that I just dove headfirst into a weird dick joke donut email. <laughs> yes. Unknowingly. Yeah. yeah. That actually makes me happy you were that happy about it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm ruining all the emails. Continue. No, you're not. You're making them all better again. All right. So don't don't even don't all worry right. about it. Uh, you know why I didn't think it was a dick joke is because he was from the Midwest. And I think that one of the fascinating things about this country is learning different, as you said, nomenclature for um, food stuff. You know, 
Got it. Yes. You ever gone out drinking with somebody from the Midwest and you're like, what do you call it? <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, when I first heard, um, when I heard drought, have you ever heard that one, Kyle? Are you trying to say drought? No. Instead like of draft, draft? Instead of draft beer, draught beer. Oh, my God. Oh, come on. I've seen it spelled that way, but, you know, we know how to say it. Shout out to Iowa. Wow. I'm just saying. I was like, what are you? Do you I was like, do you not know how to say it? Draught. Right. And I was like, I, what, why correct. are you saying? I guess that is. I was like, why are you saying it that way? I was like, do you, are you? And you're wondering, like, am I with a really stupid person? I'm like, no, that's how, that's how people say stuff. You say it. You get older, be more accepting. All right, so back to the donuts in this guy. Uh, to add to this, the teacher across the hall mentioned that he did not get a donut today. Oh. I did feel bad because I had a whole one. Any advice? Is it on the people bringing in the treats to make sure there's enough for everybody? Or do I need to cut them in half and be considerate of others? All right. I, you know, look, I'm not a big donut guy. Uh, I wouldn't want a whole one. I did buy some sidecars the other day. I just was like, I got to see what this is all about. And I grabbed some and they are good because they're so fresh and that's a whole deal. But I, I knew I was like, what are you going to do? Why did you buy? Why did you buy these and sample them all? Now you have donuts in your house. You live by yourself. You're not going to wake up and eat a donut every day. And even if you did day <laughs> six, you're not going to want to eat that donut. Um, that's kind of the whole point of how good the sidecar donuts are. Right. So. People would bring in treats to ESPN. And I mean, Cowherd to this day is one of the most fascinating people I've ever encountered, but he would just hack at like three different ones. And then you'd go in and be like, did somebody take bites out of these and put them back? <laughs> yeah. And he, just he ripped them with his fingers. Yeah. He would just rip them <laughs> apart. So it'd be like Cowherd was touching yeah. all the donuts. And you kind of were like, I. I couldn't tell now. So the reason I bring that up to apply it to this is I think I'd rather have the half donut option. I know that most people will probably disagree with me. That is fine. But at least that way, if somebody doesn't want to hold donut, that way everybody's not touching everybody else's stuff. Because when we'd see some of the treats that were out there and then it would look like a weed whacker went through them, everybody knew. They'd be like, oh, Cowherd got to these already? They'd be like, yeah. Like Somebody's going to start bringing these after 10 a.m. Eastern when he's in the studio and then... <laughs> Like you, if you're gonna set out treats, you have to wait until his show starts because he's no. Just he'd gonna... hop out in the commercial break and do it too. He wouldn't care. No, he'd true. Go over talk, he'd go over to talk to Stanford Steve, rip a donut in half, and then go back into the studio. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so I, look, Kyle, why don't you take this one? Because I, I don't. I get where this guy's coming from. He wants a whole donut. Most people would want a whole donut there, but if somebody else is cutting them up, that's pretty clear indication that they don't want to have to pay for everybody to have a whole donut or they don't want to waste or, you know, a lot of people when they're going to eat something they know they shouldn't be eating. And again, who gives a shit? You know, dabble in a donut every now and then. Eat a cheeseburger every now. Get yourself a fucking pizza and sit down and eat it one sitting. Uh, I'm I'm that guy. I'm not some fucking crazy health nut. But there's also some part of this too. It's like maybe the person bringing in the treats doesn't want to buy 40 fucking donuts either. And so if they buy a couple dozen, then everybody does get a piece of one. If there's something lingering around a little bit later, you know, Steve from math is going to come over and grab himself, you know, three. So <laughs> Steve from math. That's good. Uh, <laughs> I, I would say I would done what he did. I would have been like, all right, I'm the full donut guy. Yeah. And we knew once, that. once somebody says they didn't get one, I would feel shame. 
probably get a little sick to my stomach and would have to cut the donuts in half uh, every single time. So I think, I hope that's what he's going to do. Um, I, I know where he's coming from. I love a donut in a setting. I wasn't expecting to get one. So I was born, uh, I was born and raised not religious. My mom, my dad, or my dad gets remarried in 1999. All of a sudden I'm going to church with this blended family. And I'm like, I can't believe this. It's so long, but there was donuts at the end. And it was kind of the same deal where there was like plastic knives out. And I was like, there's no bagels here. What's the knives for? And it was to cut the donuts in half. And I never would, but I was 10. And so I know, I think that's probably how he's feeling. It's like, yeah, donuts. I'm going to have a donut. And I'm so happy. This is the best part of my day. And then I never even thought to cut them in half, but that's what everyone was doing. But I saw them passing the basket around. It's like, well, this must be the donut fund, you know? So I figured like they had money for donuts. But now I'm thinking... I think that's probably what he was thinking. And then once he had that adult realization moment, like, yeah, now you just have half a donut. But I get why you want a full one. And I think I want a full one for you. But I think you have to have a half. I don't think like the person who buys the donuts is obligated to get, a. you know, if there's 50 people, you don't have to get 50 donuts. I think some of this is that when people cut a donut in half, they're just kind of embarrassed to be taking and eating a whole donut. You know, like there's some people that just don't it, feel yeah. okay about it. Yeah. And I get that. Like, I'll, I'm... I am a dainty eater around people I don't know. And typically, if you're at work, you're probably, you know, you don't want someone thinking, oh, there's Steve shoving his face with donuts. Like, he's just like a slob. So you cut the donut in half and you kind of look like, oh, I'll just have a couple bites. Like, I don't usually do this. Like, if you tip my toe in the sweets water. But if I was by myself, I, you, you better believe I'm like, I'm going to eat the whole donut. So I think it's more of like a socialness, like a little awkward kind of thing of someone not wanting to eat a full donut. But it is. I think there are some people who probably do cut it in half because, you know, they're like, hey, let's save some other people. I don't think like remember Christine Lisi. She used to make treats to ESPN all the time. And they were delicious. And it was just kind of like first come, first serve. Like if, you, if she made a dozen, then and and she dropped them at different times during the day. But I don't think anyone was like, hey, let's save some for the rest of the people. It's just like, hey, whenever they're gone, they're gone. She brought in so much stuff and it was always absurd. It would be like an Oreo that's wrapped in a caramel like casing with then a Snickers bar on top of it. I mean, yeah. I wish there were half options for those because you'd see them and go, this is nuts. The other thing that was always bullshit about that is fucking TV people as if TV didn't have the best deal at ESPN. <laughs> like ESPN radio wasn't second class citizen. We were a fucking uncharted island that didn't have internet <laughs> or shirts. Okay. In comparison to savages, yeah. yeah, just I mean, what we were in comparison to like the television operation, the absolute disdain that you would get is like just a core radio guy when you'd be over in television being like, somebody lets you out today. Like, what do you what <laughs> even for me, man? Like, I'd be over at some bigger TV thing, and it's just like, what's what's he doing here? Or like when I did the college football playoff mock thing when it first started, and I started like talking and being like, Well, why would you guys do it this or whatever? And people are just like, why is the fucking radio person talking? <laughs> All right. And those fucking dickheads would come down to radio and just do a drive by and clean us out. It's so true. I remember like seeing one uh, guy in the break room and I'm like, hey, what, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, just taking a peek, taking a peek. I'm like, we don't have it great over here, man. We don't. <laughs> Let's, and he's let's like, have our day. Yeah. And he's looking at me being like, I'm fucking 28 and I have a studio apartment and I live in Bristol. I've been in screening since I got out of fucking Syracuse. Like, I'm not killing it either, buddy. Be like, stay over on your fucking side. All right. <laughs> I just think that once you don't want to be known as the guy who takes a full donut when it seems like everyone else around you doesn't. And I mean, and I would have been fine with that. I would like I, in church. I was the first one to, to grab the donut. That's you were what I 10. Was 
You're supposed to yeah. do that. I know, no, no, no. Yeah. I know, I know. But I'm just saying it's okay yeah. to be that. But once the guy's like, hey, just so everyone knows, I didn't have one. I don't know how he said it. He might have said it in passing. But you don't want to be the guy that's the full donut guy when everyone else in, that, that we see is half donuts and one guy didn't get his half donut. It's a great point. Adapt yeah, to your surroundings. Yeah. Adapt. Here's what Schools I was, talk I was, shit. The fact that they talk shit. They already talking shit about this guy and his long johns. All right, let's go. Um, let's go with this. I final ruling on it. You know what you could do? You want to be a whole donut guy? Why don't you bring in forty donuts? Why don't you bring in forty donuts and be like, you know what? I thought it'd be cool is everybody gets a full donut, and then if people freak out, maybe it influences somebody else and pay you know pays you back in the back end. But I think it's it's two things: adapt to everybody else, as Kyle said, and then like Suri said too. You guys are good on this. A lot of people probably just want to be like, oh, I only had a half, so they feel better about themselves. Some people, you know. Smaller people, Dainty Saruti, a full donut in his system at 8 a.m. He doesn't want that. Okay, next email. Can't believe how long we talked about that. <laughs> Office conflict, 38, 510, 175, 40 miles a week runner. Totally irrelevant to the conversation, is it? Nice. I work with two brothers, really enjoy kneeling. The older one, he owns the company uh, by regular saying how his younger brother is a natural athlete and clearly the more athletic brother. I highly suspect I'm correct. So what we're saying here is the youngest of the three brothers is more athletic than the older brother. Uh, this time is, it's time to put it, uh, an end to this issue, put it to bed. My question for you is how do we settle this debate? I'm thinking something like the NFL combine, vertical leak, shuttle drill. Maybe who can dunk on the highest basketball hoop, maybe juggling. Uh, should I tell them the events in advance or does this give them too much opportunity to train? Because remember, we're looking to determine who the best natural athlete is, not who can train the most, just who rolls out of bed and is more impressive athletically. Both of these guys are in their mid to late thirties and relatively active. I think distance running and gymnastics are out of the question. Jesus Christ. Do you think gymnastics are out of the question for him? <laughs> these guys are in their thirties. I would agree with rings. you. Right. Like, yeah. uh, all right. Bomb horse time. Who's got the chalk? <laughs> <laughs> anything else is probably fair game the older one recently claimed you could probably put up one rep of 225 in the bench but i am highly skeptical what events would you include or would you do a totally different idea on how to settle this um okay look i i would <sighs> i would try to if you guys if your two other brothers want to do this wait is he the middle brother Oh, no, he is not the brother. All right. So he is the non, he's not related to either of these guys. He goes, I work with two brothers. I, I misread. So that's what I was going to say. You can't, because he couldn't know the events. That'd be an advantage to him. So if it's two people, don't tell him the events. Right. That's, that's what he wants to do. He wants to settle the debate between who's more athletic, the older brother who's, I guess, mid to late 30s and the younger brother that's uh, also around the same age or younger. That's why he's been called the younger brother. Thank you, Rosillo, for clearing that up. Uh it depends. Here's what, whenever this happens, first of all, whenever this happens with my friend group, everybody just inevitably picks uh, the stuff they're good at, right? Like we had one roommate that was like, let's do basketball, skiing, and golf. We're like, shut the fuck up. Nobody's going to ski. We're going to judge each other. Because you got skiing. cards. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Um, I would do a free throw shooting contest. I mean, if these guys can dunk, that's incredible. But when you said who could dunk on the highest rim, it made me think that we're going to go and get some adjustable rim and see who can go higher and higher and higher. I don't think a 40 sprint time, although fun, is probably going to blow out a hamstring if you haven't run full speed in a long time. It's why so many guys screw themselves up when they're older. Um, the vertical jump, 
some of this other stuff doesn't make such sense. I would make it fun. I do it closest to the pin. I do some free throws. And then hand to hand is you, all right, fine. Throw some push ups in there. And then I say hand to hand combat. Just wrestle. Wrestle. <laughs> Honestly, you only need one event, really, just hand to hand combat. Oh, that'll solve that problem pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> what about a good old race? A good old race to the tree. All ages, right? I'm just telling you, there's a lot of guys that haven't raced to a tree in a long time. And yeah. if you start trying to run full speed, your body's like, whoa, what, what is this? What is this? Because there's like flex in your quads at the top that you're, you're like, wait, my, you haven't asked my legs to do this in a really, really long time. But maybe you do it. Maybe that's part of the question. Who holds up race to the tree better? Oh, that guy blew out his quad or hamstring. So guess what? What about he loses that event? What about like a Ninja Warrior course type thing? Like obviously not as hard as that maybe, but it's, you know, a bunch of different like obstacles that all have different strengths and you know, that, that highlight your strengths and weaknesses. Like that could be something that could be one deal and whoever goes the fastest or whoever finish it, finishes it period wins. I don't know. Where the hell is that going to be? <laughs> you guys got oh, to travel to Florida or something? Oh, okay. No, 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 no. They got the, all everybody, right. after that whole craze thing and like the, you know, the Ninja Warrior stuff, like everyone builds them in their backyard. This one down, I have a neighbor that has one in their backyard. Like everybody's wow. got those. It's, it wouldn't be hard okay. to find. Right. I just everyone's don't know if that's like. I don't know if that's like, you know, it's because it's a lot of strength. Everyone has one of these in their backyard. (laughs) I mean, not everyone, but it's not hard to find one. Like, you could be like, just Google it. I'm sure somebody has it on Craigslist. They'll run it out to 10 bucks for an hour. (laughs) They're everywhere. (laughs) They kind of are. But the only thing is like that kind of lends itself to a body type, though. Like you have to be kind of lean, strong to be that. So maybe that's not the best way to do it. Maybe we just hook him up with Saruti and you guys all go over to his neighbors. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'd be like, hey, dude, here's a hundo. Can we borrow this for an hour? (laughs) There you go. But you know what's going to happen? Um, and we're not going to read any of them. We're going to get a million follow-up emails about yep. what events they should do based on how good the emailer is at certain events. All right? Like, I don't yep. think... I always felt like the best athletes, you could really figure it out based on, like, what happened when a ball was in their hand. All right? Which seems absurd to say, like, does that mean Usain Bolt isn't a great athlete when, okay, what's the standard of what an athlete is? Right? And then as closest to the pin even matter... And then we get into this whole dart skills thing with golf that I'm so sick of fucking hearing about because it's like, all right, fine. Because I've always said that I think golfers uh, want to be considered athletes because it makes them feel better about it. But I've seen a lot of people that have mastered golf that I wouldn't consider necessarily an athlete, even though it's incredible athleticism to be so in tune with your swing and your body that you know immediately like the best golfers like, oh, what did I do wrong? And okay, now all I have to do is fix it because I know exactly what happened on the previous shot that I didn't like. Um, so I didn't want to get into that. Save it. Sorry, Saruti. I'm just, I'm no, this, is the last thing. I just, this goes back. This goes back to my like longstanding rule that I know a lot of people think is controversial or disagree with me on. But I don't care what your 40 time is. I don't care how much you could lift. I don't care what your long jump is. If you can't just naturally play basketball and not stand out like a weirdo, I don't you're not a good athlete. I'm sorry. Well, I tend to agree with that, but I'm probably a little biased. But I also think you know, they between, don't be good. Just don't just don't like be awkwardly terrible. You know, yeah, just but blend in. never. But you could still be a great athlete. And if you've never, ever developed any of those skills, like nobody's good at basketball later on in life because it's a really complicated thing to have your body totally coordinated unless you started training it at a really young age or you're just so gifted like some of these kids that were like, oh, you know, he didn't really even touch a basketball until he was 11 or he didn't start playing competitively until he was 13 or 14. And now the guys in the pros, it's like, okay, but did he play soccer? And it's like, yes, almost every one of those guys played soccer. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't ever like to be dismissive of any of it, but 
I tend to agree with you on the ball thing. So maybe handball closes the pin. If one guy's saying he can rep 225 once, throw some plates on, see what happens. But there's a really good chance they're, unless you guys really get together or get along this well at work with each other, um, I don't know. I wonder, will they want to do this? <laughs> will they be like, hey, yeah, non-brother, thanks for making <laughs> us do this. I, you know, ask them. They should know what you should do. You could turn. Here, here's what we'll do. We'll finish right here. Tell them it's a draft. People love drafts. Each brother gets five picks, and that way they come up with the ten categories. Each gets to pick one, and so they'll feel like whatever their, you know, their stuff that they're good at specialty, yeah, is is recognized in the feats of brotherhood. Thanks for checking out this podcast. Thanks to Kyle and Steve, Ryan Russillo Podcast, Ringer Spotify, back next week on Tuesday. Bill and I on Sundays. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC slim fit trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just... Once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com.